0: My hope is to be able to preach through Luke and uh, get through it in a timely manner, but it's a massive book, and so that probably won't happen. Uh, but we'll preach through it nonetheless. And uh, as I look at massive passages to uh, try and preach, it sometimes realize it may just be too much uh, for one Sunday. And so we're going to be preach, or I'll be, we'll be looking at Luke four fourteen through thirty. And uh, we, des- I decided not to go through verse 44 because <clears throat> it would be too long. What would it take for you to reject a hometown hero? Imagine a young man or a young lady goes off to the Summer Olympics and they win a gold medal in whatever, whatever incredible thing uh, they're great at. And as they come back, they're celebrated. But soon... They're rejected. And in their own town, they're despised. And in fact, the whole town decides that they want to murder this hometown hero. That would sound really crazy. It would be headline news. It would be all over the reports and people would want to read about it. And that's what we're going to read about today. And in Luke, we sometimes see uh, the different things that are going on when we see uh, how Jesus just finished the temptation against satan and then he goes out and he ministers and then very quickly he's rejected. Luke has a different timeline than Matthew and the other gospels. So when you look at this story, Luke is pulling what he's put uh, this this story right here, he's throwing it at the very beginning of the ministry and he's doing this for theological reasons. He wants us to see the rejection of Christ right away, but also, as we're going to see in this chapter, we're going to see that Christ has a specific purpose. We're going to see that in this chapter as we go on, but we're going to look specifically at verses 14 through 30. So let me just start with reading Luke 14 and 5, 4, 14 and 15. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out throughout through throughout all surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And I think we want to make a note, and as you see in your notes, we see the first point is this. This distinguishing mark of Jesus' ministry was the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, in Luke one, two, three, 3, all the way up until this point, we've seen different people uh, with the Holy Spirit upon them. We saw this was John the Baptist. We saw some of the people that were prophesying about Christ. Uh, and we see that Jesus himself had the Holy Spirit on uh, by uh, on him. We see even at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we see in verse 14 and 15, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. There's an emphasis in Luke about the Spirit And Jesus' ministry is tied to the Spirit ministry. And His ministry is tied to the Word ministry as well. And every section of this book so far has emphasized the Holy Spirit. And once again, Jesus has the Holy Spirit and is being emphasized. But He's already ministering. And so this chapter, when we look at verses 16 through 30, the main context of our verses, we'll actually see that Jesus has already done some incredible things. He's returning. In the power of the Spirit to Galilee, because he was already in Capernaum in verse 30, we see in, in verse twenty three it says this: "We have heard what you did at Capernaum uh, Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus already has been ministering. Jesus has already been performing miracles. Remember the wedding in Canaan uh, in in the other gospels He has already performed those miracles, and all of a sudden. Now, these people in his hometown of Nazareth are hearing about what Jesus did. His fame has already somewhat started to spread because he's already been working. He's been doing this in the Holy Spirit. We see this is critical for us to understand. It's important for us to see Jesus' ministry, but it also is a pattern for our ministry. Anytime that I preach or any time that we do things, we should be considering that there is a Holy Spirit that's also working. As I, Lord willing, preach today, the Holy Spirit guides and directs as we, we give instruction from the Word of God, which He inspired. I pray that if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit works in your own heart and He, he ministers to you through the Word of God. And I pray that if you're not a believer that you'll start to listen and realize that you need the Holy Spirit in your life to change and convict and convince you of the truth of Jesus Christ. But we want to get to the main message of what Jesus had to say. So Jesus has already been ministering. He's already starting to be a little bit famous. But We'll see the message of Jesus in verse 16. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus here returns to his hometown It's an interesting place. He comes back to Nazareth. This isn't where he was born. That was Bethlehem. But this is a place that he was raised. And he goes back and sees people that he probably was raised with for his whole life. Jesus, about 30 years old at this point, is around peers and people that he's probably worked with. People that would know his parents, know his family, and know him well. And as was his custom, as he often would do, he went to the synagogue. The synagogue was a place where they often did a lot of teaching. The rabbis would teach, or there would be people that would read, and Jesus is here, and it seems to be his turn to read. It says, as his custom, so he often did this. He went to the synagogue, and this may have been the first time he stood up to read, or it may have been, as they often had a rotation, he may have been in the rotation to read at this time. And so Jesus is here, he stands up, and he, they give him a scroll. And just imagine the scene. They hand a scroll to Jesus. It's the Isaiah scroll. And this is it's not just a book that you open, but the scroll. And he unrolls it to the place that they either should be at or the place that he chose. But he unrolls it to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. This is not random, but it's very clear. There's a purpose and a plan behind this. And it says in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, this is what Jesus read and we see it here in in the Gospel of Luke. But Isaiah says this, and just a note, uh, Jesus is pulling a couple things from Isaiah 58 as well into this, what he says, or, or Luke mentions it. So a couple things are going on here. But in, in Isaiah 61, it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 61 is written to people that are exiles. They're outside, they're away from Israel, they want to be restored, they're pro- they have problems, really the problem is captivity, bondage, and they're in a serious desperate need. And this is, the, this is what Jesus reads. But six, Isaiah 61 is also a messianic psalm talking about a Messiah, a messenger that will, or, or a Messiah that will one day come and restore. And as he reads this, you can imagine Jesus gets this scroll, rolls it back up, and he probably read more than just these two verses, but that's all that Luke has recorded. And he rolls it back up and hands it back to them. And everybody's looking at him. And as the teacher would often do, he sits down. And maybe we should try that if I sit down and you all stand, and that could be the way that we we have a service. We're not going to do that, but that's what they're doing. That's how they had their services, or that's how they had their teachings. And Jesus says something that may shock them all, but we don't see the shock yet. He says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Nobody reacts at this point. And Jesus probably at this point continues teaching because it says, uh, let's see, back in verse, as he sat down, all the eyes are fixed upon him. And in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So in verse 22, I think it gives us a glimpse. Jesus didn't just read and say nothing else. He's teaching. Jesus is a teacher. And that's what he did. And everybody's listening and thinking, this is really good. I mean, is this the guy that grew up in our hometown? This Jesus? Man, what a teacher. As we'll see very quickly in this next passage, he was teaching with authority. They're thinking, this is the teacher that we've never heard anyone teach like. We see we see throughout the Gospels, people say nobody has ever spoke like this. Can you imagine sitting under the teaching of Jesus? An incredible teacher, a master teacher, the most dynamic teacher, the most incredibly gifted teacher, the teacher that knows all things and expounds on the Word of God because He's the one that wrote it. Can you imagine sitting under that teacher? And his hometown buddies just say, man, this is Joseph's son. It's a pretty good job. We'll get back to what they think about this in a moment. But let's look at what Jesus came to do. Let's not overlook what he came to do. Jesus came to do four things. He came to proclaim the good news to the poor. Listen and see if there's a word that's repeated. He also came to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there's a common word there. There's a word that you hear repeated. It's the word proclaim. It's a word that doesn't seem to be maybe as popular in our day. It's really a word of proclamation or preaching. And Jesus' primary ministry is to go out and proclaim a certain thing. He's proclaiming that the poor, the captives, the prisoners, the blind are going to be set free. And He talks about the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when we see this, we have an immediate question. And probably if you're reading it, you probably have read this before. Is Jesus talking about the physically poor or the spiritually poor? Is he talking about actual prisoners and captives? Or is he talking about spiritual captives? Well, there's a lot of debate on that. In fact, uh, if you are a conservative evangelical, you would probably say this is spiritually poor. If you are a liberal ecumenical, you would say, well, this is, the, so, this is a socioeconomic status. This is a person that is physically poor, physically blind, physically a prisoner, and we should liberate them. Liberation theology gets their views from, the, from this passage. And we'll take this and say, Jesus set people free, so should we. And they've read this wrong. We would see here that Jesus did come to the poor. Jesus did come to the blind. Jesus did come to those that were oppressed. And He does heal some. He does heal the poor. He does help the poor. He doesn't necessarily remove the poor from their economic status. He changes the sight of the blind. But we don't see Him restoring or, or letting captives or in prisoners free. Even if you think about it, in a few chapters, we're going to listen and, and see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, "Hey, send." He's in, John the Baptist is in prison, right? And he tells them, His disciples, go ask Jesus if He's the Messiah or if I should look for another. And you think, don't you think that John the Baptist would know this is the Messiah? Well, John the Baptist is sitting in prison wondering, is the Messiah going to set the captives free? And we know John the Baptist was never set free. He was killed in prison. He was decapitated for what he believed. Jesus came and He does help the poor. He does help the blind. He does help the oppressed. But He specifically is coming to those that are spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, and they understand their need. Now, people that are often poor, that are often blind, that are often oppressed have a greater understanding of their need. This was Israel when they were exiled. They would often rebel against God and Israel. They would they would turn from Him. They would worship other things. God would have another country come in and they would conquer Israel. Israel would be exiled. They would be under slavery. They would be in a terrible situation. And all of a sudden, in their oppression, in their poorness, in their, in their terrible situation, they would remember and they would realize we are desperate people that need the Lord. And this is who Jesus is talking to. And often the people that respond to the gospel are people that understand their spiritual condition because their spirit their physical condition is not what it may be what may be up to standards. When somebody is in captivity, oppressed, blind or 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 run down, their mind often goes to spiritual things. And Jesus wants them to go to spiritual things, and Jesus wants them to run to him because he is the one that's going to rescue He's going to be the one that restores. He's going to be the one that is the only one that can offer redemption. And if you would say to somebody that is spiritually blind and poor and understands their condition, they would understand and they would say, I need redemption and I can't get that physically. That won't satisfy my spiritual need. And Jesus is the one that can do that. And He sees, or we see that to understand the gospel... To understand the truth of the Word of God, you and I must understand how desperate we are. Because if we are people that follow the King, we are the people that are described in these verses. Poor, prisoners, blind, oppressed. And if you don't think of yourself as that person, and you think of yourself as better than that, and not needing any kind of outlet for spiritual help... Then you're the person that's going to get mad at Jesus in just a moment. But we are the people that need to recognize how desperate of a situation we are in. Let me just make a note. The purpose of Jesus is also the pattern that He sets. Jesus' purpose is here to proclaim the good news. He proclaims the kingdom of God. And He goes from place to place to place and He proclaims that He is the Messiah. He proclaims these things and he also heals people in these these places. But let me help you see, Jesus doesn't go on healing tours. Jesus doesn't go on an exorcism tour to go ahead and try and cast out as many demons and heal as many people to do do those things. No, he does those as a secondary means of his ministry to emphasize and give authority to the primary uh, proclamation ministry that he has. He had a ministry of preaching the good news to people. I will tell you, of all the foolish things that it seems like in the world we could do, preaching sometimes seems like one of them. I'm trying to preach to people for 10 to 50 minutes or whatever it is, and hopefully you retain, learn, and are changed. And oftentimes, churches today and people will think maybe we should change our methods. Because we're not getting results. We're not getting the packed crowds that we could get if we would put out really cool movies, have really incredible action plays, have amazing dramas. But let me just tell you, the message of the Word of God and the Gospel has gone out through the proclamation ministry before Jesus with His prophets, during Jesus' time, because Jesus proclaims it, and now we are told to proclaim the Word of God. Our ministry should be a, a primarily a preaching ministry, a ministry that proclaims the Word of God. And so if you are thinking, this is foolishness, it sometimes feels like that. Believe me, I'm the one up here. But it is what our Lord did. And it is the ministry that He undertook. And He's the one that went and said, this is what He would do. And there are people that would say, well, if we would just have healings, if we would have exorcism services, if we would have things like that, people would believe. Well, they saw Jesus and they did not believe. There were many that rejected Him. And so the proclamation of the Word of God is what we must do. You remember Lazarus? He died. And the rich man is there in hell and cries out to and says, "Send, send back Lazarus to my family so that they can hear. And the Lord tells the rich man, burning in hell, he says, they have the prophets. If he's not listening to the prophets, if they're not listening to the word of God, they're not going to listen to anybody. And let me just encourage you, if you don't listen to the word of God now and the proclamation ministry of the truth of the word of God, there's nothing that's going to convince you. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I say Jesus' ministry is so tied to the Holy Spirit. He proclaims the word of God through the Holy Spirit. And that is what we want to work in our hearts. And we have to understand our greatest need is to hear God's word and be changed from our wicked, evil state. We must be healed from our sin and spiritual blindness. But let's, look, let's continue to see after Jesus preaches this message and gives us and goes in Isaiah, what are these people here that makes them so irate? Imagine that person that came back from the Olympics or whatever incredible feat they did. They come back to their hometown and the people in their hometown want to murder them. Murder that hero. Can you imagine that? That seems crazy. Let's look in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Which makes sense. He was already talking to those that were oppressed and blind and poor. And all these problems, right, all these problems that he's addressing and he's saying he came to proclaim this. They're saying, hey, you should do that for yourself. And then he continues what they might say in the middle of verse 23. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, if I, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in all the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. If you want to look down in verse 28, It says this when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. What did he say that makes them want to throw him off a cliff and kill Jesus? What would make you want to kill Jesus? I mean, what he said doesn't seem that big of a deal. If you're reading this with maybe eyes that still don't know, or maybe possibly we want to just see and we're going to explain this. I mean, what is the meaning of Jesus's message? He tells them Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled. He's telling them a couple things. He's saying in this, this is a messianic uh, messianic passage in Isaiah. He's telling them, one, he's the Messiah. He's calling himself a prophet. He's healed people in other cities and he's coming back to his hometown and people are all of a sudden a little bit incensed at his message. And he can kind of read what they're thinking. They're thinking, hey, do this for yourself. And he gives them this proverb or this idea that, look, in your hometown, you're just not going to be well-respected. I mean, you can think about that with, I mean, I, I got to come back to my hometown, I feel somewhat respected, but you also know ah, that's the kid that flooded the bathroom years ago or whatever it was when he, you know, but there's also a reality, whoever it is that does something great that goes off from your local school or whatever it is, you're like, oh yeah, I knew them in high school. They may not seem as great as they are to everybody else. I mean, the guys that played on LeBron James basketball team may have been like, ah, he was pretty good back then, but you know. We were just teammates and, you know, may not be as special as it is to other people that worship him. And you see this and Pete, he comes back and he's saying, hey, you people have something in your hearts that's wicked. I've come to restore, to heal, to be the Messiah. And these people understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you are the people that need healed. You are the people that need to be restored. You are the poor, blind, oppressed captives. You need to be set free. And when they hear this, they're thinking, absolutely not. I don't need any of that. So he brings up a couple of illustrations. The first one is the widow at Zarephath, which is from 1 Kings 17. And we have that passage in your notes, but we're not going to look at all that. Uh, But I want to just kind of summarize this story. It's an incredible story. And Jesus connects himself with the prophet Elijah. Don't miss that, that Jesus connects a prophet to himself. He's putting himself in this place. He's putting the people in the place of Israel. And he's putting this widow at Zarephath as a person that's going to be restored. And no one wants to hear this, but Elijah, during this time in 1 Kings 17, Elijah is sent outside of Israel to Zarephath, which is a city that's in Sidon or a Phoenician city that's going to be mostly home to Gentiles uh, just north of Israel or the northern, northern coast of Israel. And people are going to hear this and immediately realize this lady is a Gentile lady outside of the kingdom of God or the children of God. And Elijah goes to help this lady. And this lady is here, and if you remember the story of the widow, she's so poor that she has really nothing. And and Elijah says, hey, give me some food to eat. And she says, oh man, okay, I'll split my last meal for me and you and my son, and then I'm going to die. I'm so poor, this is the last meal I'm going to eat, and then we're going to die. You think that's a desperate situation? Outside Outside of the children of God, a Gentile lady, a widow desperate, poor, and ready to die. And Elijah helps this lady, and they eat, and incredibly, there's a miracle done for this widow, and she is able to be restored to, or they are able to have full uh, the, full meals, but then her son dies. And she's like, why would you come here and do all this if my son is just going to die? And he incredibly raises this son the prophet of God raises the Son back to life, and she says, Truly, you are a prophet of God. She believes. She believes that that Israel, the God of Israel, is alive and real. And she understands her situation and she trusts God. And these people, when they hear this message, are thinking, We are not like some Gentile woman that's a widow outside of the children of God that was poor. And is an absolute loser in their minds. We're not that. And you can see how they start to get irate. And if he, they're not mad enough, he brings up Naaman, the Syrian general, gen, general in Second Kings 5. And they go through the totally opposite end of, end of the spectrum. This widow at Zarephath is poor, desperate. And now they're going to hear about Naaman a commander of the Syrian army, a great man, incredibly wealthy, well-respected, and a Gentile. And he has a huge problem of leprosy, a skin disease that's going to kill him and is disgusting to the children of Israel. Of all the people that Jesus could bring up, it's this dude who's a disgusting person that's an enemy of Israel that fights against them. How could this guy get brought up? Let's look in verse 8 of 2 Kings 5. When Elisha, a different prophet that Jesus is equating himself with, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. And this is talking of Naaman. Let Naaman come. And so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. I mean, he didn't even go out to him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Elisha doesn't even go out to this dude. He just sends a messenger girl out to him and says, hey, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman, verse 11, was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? I mean, this dude is a rich, arrogant dude. And he's just like, hey, I just think this guy should not recognize who I am and come out, wave his hands around, do his thing, and cure me. I'm willing to give him whatever it takes. Take all the money. Take everything I have. I need to be cured. And this is the person that Jesus brings up. I mean, can you imagine how disgusting this man is to the Israelites? What an arrogant Gentile that thinks he can call upon the prophet and the Lord God to heal him. Verse 13, But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. And at this moment, I think Naaman recognizes how desperate he is. It's a moment of recognition. I need what the Lord said I need instead of what I think I need. What I think I need is some big action, some incredible thing. What I think I need is something else other than the Lord. And that's what these people think. That's what people sitting in this auditorium are thinking right now. I need something other than Jesus to fulfill my life. I need something other than Jesus to, to restore my soul. And I'm telling you, you are searching for the wrong thing. You need to listen to the Word of God, repent of your sins, wash and be clean. What does and do in verse 14? He goes down and dips himself seven times in the Jordan according to the Word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Naaman didn't want to go down to the nasty Jordan. He didn't want to do what this guy says. He didn't want to humble himself. He thinks that his leprosy should just be cleaned. He should get get off. In fact, he should be able to get away with just paying somebody and be good. And isn't that what our people what people do in our society constantly? If I just give money to this person, if I just give money to this charity, if I just give some time to a good Salvation Army or whatever good charity you can find. I'm going to go build some houses with United Way. Wonderful. Nothing objectionable to that. But sometimes people assume that they will do enough good to make all of a sudden enough status in God's mind to restore them to full spiritual status with Him. And the reality is we need Jesus Christ to redeem and restore us because we are so desperately wicked. We have no hope. We're poor and spiritually blind. We need the gospel, and the gospel starts with a recognition of who we are. And who we are is people that are sinners in need of a savior. So you hear what Jesus says to these people, and all of a sudden it starts to make sense. They're irate. He's saying that you, the people of Israel, the people in my hometown, will reject the prophet, the Messiah you're going to reject the good news. You're rejecting the healing and restoration that comes along with it. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to go to the Gentiles. It's going to be pe- go to people that understand how poor, desperate, and weak they are. And these people, they attempt to murder Jesus in verse 28. They heard these things, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I mean, this is the dude they grow up with. Can you imagine this guy? Hey, heal yourself. You've done all these cool things. And they rose up in verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down a cliff. Don't get it wrong. They're wanting to murder Jesus. It's an attempted murder. They take him out of town. They're so mad about what he said because they're, he's saying you are not going to receive the gospel because you're rejecting it. You're not going to be the people that God calls can you imagine the scene? They're so indignant. They take him, go to the cliff, and they attempt to murder him. And then it says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went, he went away. And that's it. Jesus, incredibly, walks through their midst. Whether this is a miracle or not, I'm not sure. I mean, I've been so mad sometimes I don't notice the things going on around me and somebody could walk just past me and I'm so enraged about something. You don't think about it. We've probably been so mad like that before. You may have been like that. You don't even know what's going on. Blind with fury or anger or rage. That was these people. So blind with rage, they try to take Him out and kill Him and they don't notice Him go back through. Whether it's a miracle or not, I'm not sure, but it's incredible that they are unable to kill Him. And Jesus goes away and He's going to go on from here and to other places and He's going to do this same pattern. Preach the Gospel, heal people, And some people will respond. And some people will reject. They miss their opportunity to kill the hometown boy. They miss their opportunity to murder this guy. But they're going to get other opportunities and we're going to see throughout Luke, they're going to try to murder him all the time until they finally succeed. But praise the Lord, that's not where the story ends. And we have a risen Savior. Let me just make a couple applications and we'll be finished. Do we hate that the Gospel sometimes goes to certain people? Do we hate that the gospel is good enough news that it can restore and uh, it can save anyone? I mean, we sometimes are frustrated that certain people come to Christ. I mean, we love to see people go to Africa and preach the gospel. We love to send things to our missionary Hector Garcia and say, hey, preach the gospel there. Maybe give some time or effort to some people across the border, some ministry time there. But if somebody shows up in our church that doesn't look like us or sound like us or act like us, we may be upset. I don't know if I want them here. That's not the style that we have here for the way that they act, wear things, look, listen, live. That's not my style. You know, that person is actually a Democrat. You know, that person is actually a Republican. You know, that person actually supports things because I saw it on their Facebook about this. You don't think we should actually share Christ with them. Now, we'd never say that, but I guarantee you we act like that all the time. We sometimes don't want people in our churches and congregations because they look different than us. They're not the right ethnicity. They're not the right age. They're not the right whatever. And how wicked is that for our own hearts? I mean, this is what Israel got mad at Jesus for. You would send the gospel to the Gentiles? You would save those people? No way, Lord. Now I had a conversation with a guy that used to be in our church. And he said, you know, I just can't believe there would be anybody that would vote for this specific party. I'm sure you probably know what he would be saying. And I said, well, brother, at what point... At what point in somebody's sanctification, or at what point should we start check, at what point in somebody's sanctification do we start saying, who are you voting for? That's how we know if you're a good Christian. And if that's in your heart, it's wicked. At what point should we be checking your voter status and who you check on ballots before you come to become a member at Faith Baptist Church? What an evil, wicked thought. Would you want to share people, share the gospel And their redemption with people across the neighborhood, across town, across countries, across borders, across the political aisle. Do you want that to happen or do you want the gospel to stay for people that look and act like you? And hopefully you give them a little Jesus and they get cleaned up just a little nicer. If that's the case, we don't realize how desperate we are without Jesus. We don't understand how wicked we are. We would be the people looking at the Word of God and hearing it from Jesus and saying, I'm not a poor prisoner. I'm not oppressed. I've got it pretty good. Go somewhere else. Listen, let me encourage you. Share the Gospel. Love other people. Love your neighbors as yourself. Share Christ so much that even that person that you think can never get saved, trust Christ. Or that person that you would say, I hate them so much or I'm embittered with these people. I don't want them to come to Christ. Change that in your heart and start sharing Christ. Let me encourage you. Share Christ. There's always going to be hometown haters. I mean, they were in Jesus' day. They hated Him for for sharing Christ. There's going to be some people that are going to say, hey, that's too radical. You're a little too excited about this. This Jesus thing. This is a little too crazy. I don't think you should do that. There's going to be haters wherever you go. There's going to be people that reject Christ. And if you're not willing to stand for Christ now, Christ has already said He's not going to stand for you when you stand before Him. If you're not willing to stand for Christ now in front of everybody, He who doesn't stand for you. We should stand for Christ even if everyone abandons us. Even if people hate us when we love others and love those that are poor, blind, oppressed and need the gospel, people will say, that's not right, brother. Don't try so hard. There will be people that abandon you. There may be people that even try and take your life. Give Christ. This passage doesn't just exalt the preaching of the Word of God and it doesn't just knock down barriers of culture, ethnicity, social status, but it proclaims the incredible good news to the poor. Jesus comes to set people free. He breaks the bondage of slavery. I mean, no matter how wicked you are, and no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what you think you've done and can't come to Jesus, Jesus says, that doesn't matter. I can break those bonds and I can set you free. There are people here today, either in this room or listening to the Word of God, whether it be through the radio or the ministry of the live stream. There may be people that are thinking there is no way that he could redeem me. Oh, he is a rescuer. He is a redeemer. He restores. He came to the poor, to the blind, to the oppressed. There have been men more wicked than you. There will be people more wicked than you to come and Jesus will save them. Incredible grace. Amazing grace. Christ was willing to endure rejection of His hometown. He was willing to be rejected by the religious leaders. He was willing to be rejected by the nation of Israel and go to the cross so that we can have restoration, so that the blind can see and the prisoners set free. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord and trusted in this Messiah? Have you seen your desperate need? I sometimes see it myself, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think, man, I'm so glad Jesus saved me because I can do so much. And I think if Lord, if you would just keep taking me back to that same statement over and over that I've heard before. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar how to find bread. I'm nothing better than just some beggar that found Jesus or Jesus found me and I get to share Jesus with other people. And Jesus will find them. It's not up to you. Christ will redeem. But the problem is, Christians today want to reject the radical message of redemption through Christ alone because we don't think that we're beggars. We don't think that we're poor. And We don't think that we're blind. Can you see how good Jesus is? Can you see how good He is to restore a wicked heart like mine? Like your own? Like testimonies of people that we see all the time. Don't we have a wonderful Savior?